Leadership is absolutely critical. And women are bringing forth something different. Not necessarily better, but different. And our world needs that difference. It's a different way of collaborating, of having compassion and empathy. Two words that probably people thought leadership had nothing to do with, but yet that's the cornerstone of great leadership. Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is the unstoppable Elise Nelson, who is president and CEO of the organization Vital Voices. Vital Voices serves about 18,000 women leaders across the world, empowering them across 182 countries. Now, if you go through to Elisa's social media, you'll see her with an incredible array of other fierce women leaders. She has been named one of the 100 most influential people in the global gender policy. And we talk during this podcast about what it really does mean to be an activist and to have that grassroots impact that Elise has shown us she can do so well. During this recording, we have had some technical details, so the sound is not great, but I ask you to bear with us. I welcome to the show, Elise Nelson. Good morning, Elise. How are you this morning? Good morning. I'm good, Kate. It's so wonderful to be with you. It is so wonderful to see you. And you and I have known each other for a very long time. We've had very parallel careers. And I've seen how hard you have worked over the years building Vital Voices. So obviously, I know what it's all about. I've admired your work for a very long time. I've, I've admired you as a female warrior leader changing the world. So for all the listeners out there, tell us about the mission of Vital Voices and why you started the organization. So I think Vital Voices was founded on a very simple idea that no country could move forward if half the population, women and girls, were left behind. When it was founded, though, quite frankly, back in 1997, we had no data to prove that that was actually true. We know today, lots of data, lots of research, not nearly enough, that that is the case, right? That, you know, countries and communities need not just the economic power of women, but the leadership power. So what we do at Vital Voices is we search the world for women who have a daring vision for change, and we invest in them and their vision to take it to scale. And we do that through training, mentoring, and network of their peers, visibility, credibility, crisis support when they need it. And I think just reminding them that they are indeed leaders, because I think for so many, leadership is what they see maybe on TV in their countries, and maybe they've got bad leaders. And I think one of the things that we want to do is really bring forth this new model of leadership that we see women pioneering around the world. The women that we work with are really tackling some of the world's greatest challenges from, you know, economic inequity to gender-based violence to the climate crisis. Well, that is fantastic. And as we know, when you invest in a woman, you get so much more than just investing in her. You strengthen her community, you strengthen nations, and therefore, you know, investing in women, investing in women's leadership is a fast track to ending extreme poverty in my mind. So thank you for doing that work, and uh, we need more of it. What would you say 
are your biggest challenges day to day? Is it funding? Like, what is it? I mean, you and I have talked about this endlessly of, Mm. you know, it's constantly a battle, right? It's constantly a battle. So what is it you need to thrive? Time, right? I mean, there's just, there are not enough hours in the day to do all that needs to be done. I think all of us are reeling from a year and a half slash two years of, Honestly, women stepping backwards, right? We have seen the pandemic and then the shadow pandemic of the increase of domestic violence disproportionately impact the lives of women. I honestly take great, I guess, hope and maybe even see some glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel because I do believe it is in you know those darkest moments that we're able to make breakthrough change. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we need to run towards bringing forth that change. I think what became very clear over these last two years is that status quo leadership no longer works. Leadership is absolutely critical. And women are bringing forth something different, not necessarily better, mm-hmm. but different. And our world needs that difference. It's you know, a different way of collaborating, of having compassion and empathy, two words that probably people thought leadership had nothing to do with, but yet that's the cornerstone of great leadership. Mm. And, you know, as you say, over the last two years, let's say over the last five years, (laughs) there's been a lot going on, right? In politics, with climate, with violence, with Black Lives Matter, with the Me Too movement, Like we've had a lot. And then, of course, the pandemic, we've had a lot going on. Let's unpick that a little bit. First of all, can you explain why women are more affected by COVID than men? Because that stood out, what you just said right there. So what's the deal? Well, first, I'll I'll tackle the domestic violence issue. As you know, COVID created a sort of breeding ground for an increase on domestic violence, and then also made women economically more insecure, which also makes them more vulnerable to violence. Why? Well, for one, when anytime anxiety increases within countries, communities, households, people lose jobs, there is uncertainty, there's lockdown on top of that, right? So now you are locked in a house, potentially with your abuser. That is just the sort of perfect storm for an increase in domestic violence. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, women were also the first to lose jobs or they were pushed out of the workforce because they had to take on full-time caretaking roles, either for children or for adults or for those who were sick with COVID. And so I think, you know, everything from job loss, caretaking, to the increase and uptick of as much as 30, 40, 50% in some places of domestic violence really created that environment where we saw women lose a generation of progress in one year. And that's not just according to me, that's according to the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. The one Mm -hmm. thing that I will say gives me hope is they preface that by saying at current rates of progress, right? So if we can speed forth progress, right? If we can have a better year and a better year, then hopefully we can move faster and we can make up that time. Well, you know, I think I've known you close to maybe 15 years. And, you know, together we're treading the pathways of of Davos and 
We're those activist women who don't take no for an answer. And you are an absolute marvel at this. And you have really built a group of incredible supporters at a very high level to help you with the mission. There is nobody as good as you at doing that. How have you done that? I have a couple of questions. First of all, how have you managed? You know, every Instagram post that I see, you know, it's like, here I am with Hillary Clinton and here I am with Michelle Obama and here I... (laughs) It's amazing. I mean, I've been in your shoes and I know exactly what it takes and how hard it is to not just gain the support of, the power mongers, but keep the support. And you've done that exceptionally well. And these ladies, these figurehead leaders turn up for you. So how have you done that, Elise? What's your special sauce? Honestly, I think it's authenticity. It's really being being yourself, being your word, standing for what you believe in, doing what you believe in. I think One of my board members recently said to me, actually Donna Langley, who's the chair of Universal Pictures, one of the most powerful women in Hollywood. And she told me that one of the things that she admires is that every day is almost like my first day on the job, that I bring that excitement. And it's true. I do, because I really do believe in this work. I believe in the work of this organization. I believe I'm a product of this organization. I have been mentored and supported and learned so much about what real leadership is about from women all over the world. Mm-hmm. And and let's just say, you know, one day you wake up and, you know, we both know Diana von Furstenberg. She sits on your board. She is a huge yeah. supporter of yours. So one day you wake up and you think, hmm, okay, I need to get DVF, right? So what do you do? What's the technique there? On It's like, okay, we need DVF. Here's what I'm going to do. Well, I think, you know, she responds to things that are in the news. She she wants to do good. I mean, DVF, you know, at her core is, you know, is a, is a very cause-driven person. I mean, one of the things that you may or may mm-hmm. not know is that actually every day when she gets up, she has this rule where she does something for someone else before she thinks about her own day. Mm-hmm. And this is part of this phase that she talks about being in now in her life where she really wants to use her power, her platform, her voice to give voice, right? To give power to other Mm -hmm. people. And I think what Mm -hmm. she finds, this is absolutely true, is that when she does that, it like boomerangs back to her, right? And so she feels Mm -hmm. fulfilled. But she's definitely one of those people who I think is, is open for where do I lend my time and my energy? But I would also say that the reason she trusts me is that we built that relationship over time. So when Mm -hmm. I called her as we knew that Kabul was falling and Afghan women and girls' lives were very much at risk, you know, she took the call. She, you know, wrote the checks. She personally got engaged. And then she called every single day to check in. What's the latest? How can I be more helpful? I mean, to me, I'd say the secret to engaging any of those people is time. It takes time to build trust with people. And I think it's being the real deal always, right? Being who you are, who you say you are. And I think also it's showing up. It's continuously showing up. Mm, I hear you on that one. Now, talking of Afghanistan, I know that, you know, the last time I spoke to you, you were exhausted. Um, (laughs) You were doing an extra job because it's not exactly in your wheelhouse to be going to Afghanistan. And Getting, getting girls out. 
But you were doing it because, as you say, you care about what's going on in the world and you wanted to do your bit and get your world involved in it. So what's going on there now? Where are we? What needs to happen? How can we help support the girls? Keeps me awake at night. What actually is happening to them? So explain the scene, paint the picture. Well, first I'd say the biggest thing we can do is not forget, not abandon we don't see these images that we saw back in middle of August, end of August in the news anymore. And sadly, that means that there's less attention, there's less funding and resources mm-hmm. going, but that doesn't mean the problem is any better. In fact, the problem's worse, right? Yes, mm-hmm. thousands of people were evacuated. Thousands of women were evacuated. We did our part, certainly. But sadly, you know, you can't evacuate everyone in a country. The, the real need is the fact that this is a country that's it's going under. It's not just about the rights of women and girls and killings happening. I mean, I we hear every day of another horrific story. It is also the fact of the Taliban is governing with fear. They are not a real and legitimate government. They're going to starve their people. They're going to push the entire country into poverty and into violence. Ruling with fear obviously never works. It is not a strategy. In terms of what we did, just to back up, We've been involved in Afghanistan really since our early days. In fact, when we started the office that Vital Voices was eventually born out of, when we started that office within the State Department, because Vital Voices started as a U.S. government initiative, when we started that office back in 1996, it was September of 1996, we opened up the doors of that office. It was the first global women's issues office within the State Department to mainstream women's issues into foreign policy. Believe me, everybody was like, social policy is what that is. You know, this is foreign policy. This is not serious stuff, you know, (laughs) which I'm sure hopefully they're eating their words at this stage. But the day we did that, the Taliban moved into Kabul the first time and told women they couldn't go to work and girls they couldn't go to school. And that was one of the first issues that we really took on is not how to speak for Afghan women, but how do you get Afghan women's voices heard and make sure that people understand their perspective and you give them rights and opportunities. And then shortly thereafter, after 9-11, when the Taliban fell, we were among the first to work with women to train them to get into the media now that they could speak publicly, many of them to talk about the future, to talk about what life had been like under the Taliban, to talk about the fact that in the 60s, women in Afghanistan were wearing miniskirts, right? That this was not their their history, right? And that this was not the way they saw their future. And Mm. so I think it's always been about how to get Afghan women's voices to the forefront. We've also, over the Mm. years, trained Afghan women political leaders, worked with Afghan women building businesses, And so obviously, as we began to see the writing on the wall, knowing that the U.S. was moving far too quickly to get out of Afghanistan with, quite frankly, an arbitrary date by which everybody was going to be gone, we knew that was not going to be a good strategy. We also knew that although there was some plans in the works, although not fast enough, not strong enough plans in the works to get SIVs, those who worked for the U.S. government, Afghans who worked for the U.S. government, out of Afghanistan, get Americans out of Afghanistan. What we knew is that so many Afghan women leaders who'd stepped out because, you know, we had been there and we had their back. Well, now we didn't have their back anymore. At least our government didn't have their back. Mm. And Mm. we knew, okay, this is a disaster. And 
what we also saw is that a list was intercepted by the CIA, supposedly. I've never seen this list, but this list was intercepted by the CIA. And on this list was a number of people who the Taliban had put together the list. It was a number of people who were going to be executed. It was women who were going to be executed because they were speaking out against the Taliban. These were women and girls, right? They had been leaders in their communities. They had negotiated against the Taliban for peace. They were the voice of the future and they wanted them out. Mm. And so Mm. we took that list and really built upon it. It grew. We also had family members that we needed to add into that list. No woman is going to leave her country, you know, without her children, without her husband, without her mother. So, you know, these are large families and people had to limit who all they could take. And that was difficult. And then we worked in coalition with Georgetown University Institute for Women, Peace and Security, where Ambassador Milan Revere is, who is a great mentor of mine and one of the founders as well of of Vital Voices. Zainab Salbi was the first person who called Mm -hmm. me and said, Vital Voices be involved in this. And you know Zainab. I mean, and Zainab called. Take the call, you know, yeah. you, you, you do, you do, yeah. you do. We knew we needed to, to step up to support women getting out as well, but it wouldn't, it mm. wasn't something done before. I mean, who had ever ran evacuation yeah. out of Afghanistan? Nobody. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember when Haiti happened, we were doing the same thing. It wasn't quite as acute as what's happening in Afghanistan, but it was a crisis and people needed to leave. Did you actually go to Afghanistan? Have you been there? No, I've never been to Afghanistan. Because you you look at the images. I haven't either. We never had a program there. Obviously, now one is very necessary, especially around healthcare, right? Like when I watch the news, and as you say, it's now no longer in the news, so we can't forget what's happening there. You see the conditions that people live in. And I, I think constantly, how do girls and women in a situation like that where it's pure survival, get access to the healthcare that they need. They're still having babies. They're still having sex. They still need a pap smear. They still need maternal health. They, they still need sexual reproductive health. They need access to contraception. What about those basics going on in Afghanistan? There's one thing getting the endangered out, but the other is day-to-day. Yeah, it is day-to-day. And that kind of infrastructure, quite frankly, doesn't exist right now. And it is really troubling. Just to give you an example of the 1,000 women and their families, so 1,000 people total, that we evacuated to Albania temporarily and were working and supporting them to eventually get permanently resettled either in the United States, Canada, or elsewhere. And I hope one day they're all going to go back to Afghanistan because these are the leaders of the country. They are the best and the brightest and are desperately needed, but also their voices are needed to speak from outside. We've had seven babies born to that group just in, you know, since September, right? So you think about that. In three months, seven babies being born. We had two sets of twins in there. I know we have more babies that will be due soon. And, you know, you also, there are a number of infants. I think we've got something like 45 people under two, you know, among the group. So it's it's a very young population. And we've definitely seen there are a lot of health issues that were not dealt with. We had a little girl, for example, 
who was going to lose her eye. She had terrible eye infection. Her retina had been torn in the evacuation. She had lost her glasses. Her retina had been torn. She needed a eye surgery. And that was something that we paid for as part of her being, you know, in Albania. We're supporting all of the healthcare system, the meals, the, you know, they're staying in a, in a, a resort community. And we're paying for all of that out of the funding that we raised in those early mm. days. But I'll tell you, Kate, you know, back to the fundraising piece and that obviously being a challenge, once things are out of the news, you know, we raised probably $8 million in 10 days. But that next two million really trickled, trickled, trickled in. And mm. the sad thing mm. is, is that this is when the money's really needed. It's one thing to evacuate yeah. people, but it's another thing to continue to support them and all of the needs that they have. And there were a lot of healthcare needs just immediately, mm-hmm. you know, coming out of Afghanistan. Well, again, amazing work that you've done evacuating those a thousand people from the list. I constantly think about the infrastructure and almost the rebuild that needs to happen in Afghanistan based on that it has been flattened. So there isn't adequate anything for people to just exist there in a humane way. As in, you know, you and I have had babies, right? We know what it's like to be at your most vulnerable time and we had the best healthcare that exists, going to a hospital or have, giving birth at home and having a midwife, having a doctors, if there was any situation. I just, I just can't imagine what it's like to be a woman in Afghanistan right now. That's what I'm struggling with. And I just dread to think what they have to deal with and try to be leaders as well at the same time. There's so much trauma in feeling that survivor guilt. And I think, you know, first there's the adrenaline that helps you get out, right? And then it wanes and you begin to realize, like, I've lost everything. Not not only, you know, did I have to leave my home and everything behind, right? They, they could leave with a little purse. So you imagine everything you've built up, all the special things in your home that make it your home, you know, that that remind you the places you've traveled to and the people you love and your accomplishments. It's gone like that. Who even knows happening to their homes now? And it's Mm. not just building that. And we were actually had, I was talking to a wonderful uh, Afghan woman who was one of the people to get evacuated very quickly early on. And she got it to a U.S. military base and now has made her way off the base. And she's being resettled here in the U.S. And she was saying, you know, as she was realizing she had no silverware, like no forks, no, you know, no knives. Mm no plates, no glasses, and thinking how much she had lost that she has to, you know, every time thinking about buying something new, you think about what you've left behind. And it's not obviously about the silverware. It's about all of what she fought for. I mean, she was a former deputy minister in her country. And it, it, it's all of that, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. 20 years of progress down the drain. So that's severe trauma right there absolute trauma. How do you recover from that? Talking of self-care, at least, this is something that is never really talked about when you're in a position like you are. And, you know, I remember working so hard when I was, you know, building Maverick Collective and I was at PSI and, you know, it's go, 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 go. You forget to put yourself on the list. And, you know, as an activist, as a female leader, 
doing this work, having found your life of purpose, how do you care for yourself? Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say, Kate, during this most recent crisis in Afghanistan, and I've never worked in that way in a real humanitarian crisis, that is not my background. You know, I certainly work with women, an individual woman in crisis and supporting her, but that many people depending on you, feeling like, I remember feeling like I was in California and I needed to get on a plane to get back to DC because my kids were starting up school. We were at my parents' house and thinking, I can't be away from my computer for five hours to fly cross country because something might happen and somebody might die, right? And that level of stress and anxiety and not being able to sleep, it really got to me. And, you know, honestly, thank God I am married to the guy I'm married to. My husband served in with the UN in many, many war zones. And he's the touchstone. He brings me back when he sees me sort of going off a bit. So he's, he's very helpful. I'm not always very helpful to myself. That's, I would say it's one of my goals is to figure out ways to be to take better care of myself. I think you're exactly right. Funny story. We, we started a, a wellness uh, voices program with uh, a number of board members we have in Europe and they had prepared this incredible sort of week of wellness. And they asked me to think about the women who had really been under traumatic stress over that past year. We had a woman from Nicaragua who had lost her business. We had a politician from Cambodia who had to flee, a racial justice activist uh, from New York City. I mean, just an incredible group of women, woman who's been working for 35 years in the slums and in, in, in Mumbai, um, you know, working in a night shelter to keep kids safe. And we brought them all together. And I thought, well, I'll just go for a day or two and check it out and make, you know, see how it is. Because, you know, I don't know, this seems, you know, a whole week, you know. <laughs> And literally I go and, and I kind of settle into it. And, uh, there are many, many photos of me asleep in various places throughout the house. (laughs) Uh, I think I realized that this was something that I needed too. And it was so rejuvenating. And I think for me, I, I, I find nature rejuvenating. I find sleep rejuvenating. For me, I think one of the greatest things is just laughing with my kids who are five and seven, that, that just lovely joy of, you know, exploring and seeing the world for the first time in so many ways, right? Through kids, that really kind of brings me back to the center Mm. and good friends, right? Mm. One of, I think the Mm. greatest joy for me, Kate, coming out of the work over this past six months, particularly on Afghanistan, is actually becoming very close with Zainab Salbi. Yeah. Known forever, but we worked so closely together in those days and just that solidarity. I, as you know, love Zainab. She is just such an inspirational woman. And I believe we're in the same year of YGL, right? So we've gone through, uh, so I know her really, really well and actually just had her on the podcast talking about Afghanistan. But I do know that she's had a huge change in her life as well, really around around what we're talking about right now, where, you know, she built Women for Women, as you know. I was building Maverick. She was building Women for Women. You were building Vital Voices. You know, I, I think our lives were very, very similar with the same struggles. You know, you and I have a family, children, she does not. 
but the same struggles of always having to be on, right? You're always giving, 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 and you just don't put yourself on the list, right? You don't get enough sleep. I'm talking from my own experience. You don't eat properly, constantly thinking of the mission. You're constantly not just thinking about the mission, but keeping your supporters engaged. I mean, that cannot be underestimated is a big part of what we do. And it's a lot. It's a lot because you become emotionally engaged in the lives that you're saving and the lives that you're empowering. But at the same time, your world is in two, right? You've got your mission and then you've got, how do I get the resources? How do I keep my supporters engaged? It gets to be more than a full-time job for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I felt at a certain point that I couldn't give my daughter what she was needing, right? And she used to uh, say to me <laughs> when she was very young, when she was at the age that your kids are, she used to tell people when she was asked, well, what does your mummy do? She would say, oh, my mummy saves the babies who have nothing. And she would make little piles of clothes and things like toys she didn't want anymore for the babies who had nothing. So we were teaching her very early about philanthropy and giving back and social justice and whatnot. But yeah, it's a lot. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about the act of what it really means to be an effective activist. And, you know, you have absolutely found your life of purpose. Uh, quick question. What did you do before you started Vital Voices? And how did it actually happen? Did you have an aha moment? Like, you know, who are you? Where did you well, come from? Well, um, first off, there really was no before. My story is um, when I was in college, I was just incredibly ignited, very interested in these issues. I've been interested in these issues for a while and heard about something called the United Nations Fourth World Conference on Women. This is in 1995. Google did not exist until like 1998. So, you know, if you wanted to learn about women's issues, you couldn't Google it. You had to go there, right? I mean, women didn't have email the way we do today. We weren't all connected. We didn't have the kind of websites or social media and I was just curious. I was, I knew I was, you know, of this sort of global generation and I, I wanted to connect with, with other women. I wanted to learn about what the issues were. I knew that women did not have the same rights as men, but I didn't know everything. And that's, you know, you mm -hmm. couldn't read newspaper articles or studies or quite frankly, even really books back then. And so I, randomly decide, okay, I'm going to go to this Beijing women's conference. I remember I called my dad and I don't know about you, but like with my, with, with fathers, it's like, you tell them you're going to do something, you're doing it. Right. And so I'm like, I'm going to the Beijing women's conference. My dad's like Beijing, Texas. What do you mean? Beijing, Beijing, China. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I saved and borrowed and I bought the cheapest ticket I could find. I had like five stopovers before I landed in Beijing and I didn't even get the right kind of visa. The Chinese organizing committee wouldn't give it to me. So I had to like sneak into the conference, which, you know, obviously was another nerve wracking thing of my parents. And then being there, I mean, surrounded by all these women learning about all of these issues. And I had to wonder, OK, wh why did I want to come? Why did I feel so compelled to be here? And, you know, I think a lot of times when you're getting all this incoming and you wonder, well, what should I do with this? Right. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I really got my message on the last day of the conference when secretary Clinton, then first lady spoke. And 
I wasn't necessarily a fan at that time. I mean, I was your typical skeptical of government <laughs> college student, you know, at the time. But I have to say, I was in awe of the fact that nobody wanted her to travel there and she was going to do it. She wanted the world to pay attention. And she knew if she spoke that she had power and she had influence. And she gave, you know, probably one of the most historic speeches, the most historic speech on women's issues of mm-hmm. all time, mm-hmm. rights, human rights. And I was there to hear it. And it spoke to me. And what it said to me was, here's someone who recognizes she has voice and power and she's going to use it to give voice to all these women that are here and all these issues that sadly were not being reported in the press. But they were very Mm -hmm. interested when she was talking about them and she came. And I think to me, it made me realize, like, I, too, need to be a voice. I mean, I don't have her voice. Right. But but I have a voice and I can speak Mm -hmm. and I have means to get the message out. And I went back to my university. I was in my senior year then. I organized a huge gathering to talk about what happened in Beijing, to talk about the fact that this was the most progressive document, sadly still is, that was signed in 1995 to advance women and girls. And I invited a woman from the White House. Her name's Teresa Lohr. I invited her to come. She was the director of something called the President's Interagency Council on Women. Hillary Clinton was the chair, or honorary chair, I think at the time, um, The chair was uh, Donna Shalala, who later became Madeleine Albright. And she said, you know, you should come work for me because we don't know how to engage young people in these issues. I'm like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Young people, young men are actually really interested in these issues because they realize this is a different generation, right? It's not Mm -hmm. their father's generation. And so I came down to work. I worked as an intern for six months or so, you know, just kept kept going in, working like a dog. In fact, Huma Abedin and I started at the White House as interns as part of the First Lady's office at the same time, same year. And uh, I mean, what a spectacular adventure she's been on, right? And she's got an incredible Mm -hmm. new book out. She's now, she recently came onto the board of Vital Voices, just really phenomenal. But, you know, it was really following that calling, that inner voice that you don't know what the heck, why the heck it's speaking to you, but you follow it. And, you know, I definitely had opportunities to go veer off this way or veer off that way. But I've always believed, I don't know if you've heard this word, Kate, one of my favorite words, IntelliKey. And what IntelliKey means is your full potential, reaching your full potential. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that all of us, whether it be our organization's potential, our human potential, like we know what that potential is. Like it mm-hmm. lives there, right? Like mm-hmm. the IntelliKey of the acorn is to become the oak tree, right? It's like, mm-hmm. we know we're destined and mm-hmm. do we believe in it? And will we follow it? And will mm-hmm. we be afraid of it? That's the journey I've been on and I will continue on. And people say to me all the time, you know, oh, maybe it's time for you to do something else. You've been doing this a long time. I'm like, no, no, I'm following that IntelliKey. And I know when I get there and um, we're not there yet. We're not there on these issues. And I think I'm not there. I haven't learned all the lessons I need to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm a big believer in stay on the journey until you're no longer passionate, curious, And, you know, honestly, I think uh, challenged. You should be challenged on a regular basis. And I still Mm -hmm. continue to challenge. I challenge myself. Mm -hmm. I challenge all of us. Mm -hmm. There's another word out there which is very similar. It's a Japanese word and it's called ikigai. Mm -hmm. And ikigai is, uh, it's it's a book and it's a 
Japanese philosophy on basically, I think very similar to what you're saying, which is long, happy, healthy life full of purpose. And when I read that book, that for me was a real turning point because I realized that I hadn't actually found my icky guy yet, as in I had my life of purpose and I would wake up every morning so excited. And I know you do the same to get to work, to have our impact, to do our thing. But you got to balance it with health and self-care and, you know, the stress will will kill you, literally. Yeah. Um, but yes, Ikigai. I was very, very influenced by Ikigai. And, and you know, we found, we have found that. We have found our life of purpose and we're constantly learning and empowering. And it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling. Now, last question, because we are very sadly out of time. Hmm. What would you say to someone who wants to go down our path, wants to go down our path of doing what we've done and being out there. You know, it's so inspirational, at least what you've done and everyone admires you. But what, what's your, and what's your piece of advice to somebody who's thinking about going down this pathway? Well, I think it's, it's rope up, right? It's not, it's not a quick journey, Right. I think if you if you really want to make change, real sustainable change and have that life of purpose, it's not going to, you know, even in a 24 seven world, it's not going to happen overnight. And that that you need to be physically and mentally prepared for. Right. And I think also don't be guided by money and titles, be guided by heart, what fulfills you. And I think one thing I have learned over the years is to let go of the outcome a bit. So what I mean by that is don't worry about who gets credit for anything you do, right? And I think, unfortunately, we're living in a world that, quite frankly, is ruled by this masculine energy, although it's shifting, according to the Mayans, but that's another story. <laughs> but you know, ruled by this masculine energy that says we need to get credit for everything we do so that our organization gets bigger and gets more money and da, 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 da. But ultimately, I think that's not the way you make real change. The way you make real change is you do the work, you partner with, you share, you collaborate, you radically collaborate and share and support each other. And that's how you actually make change. And mm-hmm. I think if you, you stay worried and, well, me, 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 you're nev- it's never going to be you, right? And I think mm-hmm. that that has been in my mind, where we, where we succeed, it has because we have done so, not worrying about who gets credit, not worried about who gets the money, the outcome, the, you know, but just being focused on doing the good work. Yeah. Well, us at the Body Agency are absolutely thrilled to partner with you down the road, to support the work you're doing. We really believe in investing in women, investing in social enterprise, investing in helping women have a platform to lead and to be financially stable. So we're very excited to be partnering with you. For everyone listening out there, at least, how do they get in touch and support you? Give your last plug here. Yes. I mean, I, vitalvoices.org is our website and, you know, or follow us on social media, which is just at Vital Voices for Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. We're on all those platforms. Follow us, get engaged, 
find your purpose as well. One of the things that we've just launched is something called the Vital Voices Leadership Journey. It's basically a seven-week course built on the best practices, lessons learned around five core practices of leadership we've learned from 20,000 women across 186 countries. And we want to impart that to as many people, particularly women, as we can, as quickly as we can. So we are launching Mm -hmm. this course and it starts next year and we'll just keep running it as long as people are enjoying it. The one thing I would say to you, Kate, that I would say gives me hope as we look to the future is just back to the Mayans. And I had an incredible experience with the Mayans in Guatemala that really changed my life. And one of the things that they said is that, you know, 2012 was not going to be the end of the world as some people had predicted, right? Remember that 2012 is going to be the end of the world. But actually 2012 was the shift after 5,226 years from the masculine energy to the feminine energy. And that doesn't mean men and women, the future is female. What it means is the masculine to the feminine, right? Our world desperately needs what the feminine brings, right? The collaboration, the empathy. Yes, the strong decision-making and decisiveness and strength. Yeah. Heck, has ever met a woman who isn't strong? We give birth, for God's sakes. <laughs> While multitasking, tech- checking yes. our emails. And- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I talked to a Mayan priest recently about this. And I said, you know, I haven't totally seen the shift. And he said, you've seen the cracks, though, haven't you? You know, if you've yeah. built something up for 5,226 years and now it's about to be dismantled, it doesn't happen overnight. It's about the cracks in the system and letting, you know, air in through those cracks and things begin to change. And that gives Mm -hmm. me hope because I do strongly believe if what I've seen women do around the world is replicated en masse by men and women, this way of working together, collaborating, empowering, using power to empower rather than to have power over, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. I think we are, we are in for a better future. Yeah. Well, you've absolutely nailed it. Collective action partnership is the way to go. That's how I live my life. That's how I run my organization. And um, there's no one better doing this than you, Elise. Thank you so, so much for being with us. You are a true inspiration and uh, good luck with everything you do moving forward. Thank you. My pleasure. We are partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products and those that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit and empower our Ukrainian sisters. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all of my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. Be sure to sign up for our email list at thebodyagency.com for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotion code to get a 10% discount, podcast10. Thanks for listening.